we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to the universe next door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. This show is a ministry of the C.S. Lewis Society and supported by gifts of listeners just like you. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is the universe next door. As we mentioned Monday, we're going to be taking a quick break this week from our cultural and ethical issue series. Uh, We're going to pick that back up Monday at 6 p.m. next week. We're going to have uh, Beckett Cook on to talk about his testimony a little bit, to talk about the topics of homosexuality and the transgender situation. And so that's going to be incredibly interesting. But for today, we're going to be joining an interview with Dr. Tom Woodward and Dr. Berkeley Greider, who is a brilliant biochemist. It is literally mind-blowing what is going on in the DNA in every single one of our cells. So we're going to dive pretty deeply into that. Uh, I could almost guarantee you that you're going to learn a lot of stuff about what's going on in your body that you did not know. And I'm not exaggerating when I say it is mind-blowing. We're going to be talking about the topic of epigenetics, which is something that is crucial and that is on the rise in the scientific community. But before we do that, make sure you check out the survey below. If you just click that link, it'll bring you to a survey with a few questions. We want to know what you guys are thinking uh, and what would be beneficial to you on the show. So it would be a huge blessing to us if you would just fill that out. And of course, you'll be automatically entered into a free book drawing where we'll be giving out Sean McDowell's book, his brand new book that just came out in July called A Rebel's Manifesto. And if you haven't heard the episode that we did with Sean McDowell, go back and check that out as well because it was really cool. So let's get into the interview on epigenetics with Dr. Tom Woodward and Dr. Berkeley Greider. Well, today it is a pleasure for me to honor uh, this uh, beautiful audience we've cultivated over the last 17 years here at the Universe Next Door, formerly Darwin and Design, and uh, just have a kind of a, a high point, a Mount Everest moment uh, in inviting to the microphone Dr. Berkeley Greider. He is at Case Western Reserve University. I don't know if I got the exact wording right, but is that close enough? Okay. Yeah, and I call it the the Harvard, the MIT of Ohio, and uh, up up there, not too far away from Cleveland. And I just love to hear uh, about new developments in this area of epigenetics, which is the focal point of Dr. Berkeley Greider. We got acquainted here in the last uh, about seven or eight months. And I think Dr. Greider has uh, wowed me by uh, mentioning he actually has the book that I penned about 10 years ago with Dr. Uh, James P. Gills on his shelf. Uh, so uh, I'm going to award you 150 bonus points for having that book on your shelf. You know, I will not ask you if you've read it because you have thousands of more advanced books to look at. But I love no, it. I did read it and I loved it. I think it, it's a very great introduction to the topic of the, of the epigenome. Um, you know, I, I think as a chemist, I was grabbing all sorts of books like that to try to understand the epigenome a decade ago. Before I became an expert in it, I was just a fan. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. Now, let's let's go go ahead and just jump into your work uh, in a general way. If you if someone said, "Hey, uh, I've heard of genetics, study of DNA, and then the RNA." 
transition to making a protein. RNA is like a sister molecule. And we've talked about that many times in our program. Give us your capsule summary or your bird's eye view of what is epigenetics, this new burgeoning exploding field. There are two different definitions that people will throw around. Uh, I'll say the, the first one and the second one. Uh, the first strict definition of epigenetics is dealing with non-genetic inheritance or the ability to for, for a daughter cell to inherit something that wasn't written in the epigenome from the parent cell. And so that's a very broad definition. It, it usually is referring to histone modifications or DNA modifications that are not actually the sequence code of the genome but which lie on top of, or are other molecular sources of memory. It's a molecular memory of, uh, that's passed on from, from cell to cell as cells divide. Um, so that's, that's the first, I think, entry-level uh, term definition for epigenetics. And epi, of course, just means on top of. So it's the layer on top of, or epi, the genome. The genome, of course, being this awesome supercomputer of um, just miraculous technology uh, for doing computation. But I, I'll sort of now say, if you were to ask someone, you know, what is the field of epigenetics as, as a group of scientists pursuing questions, it has much more to do with gene regulation so epigenetics is all of the mechanical machines that interact with and make choices about what genes are turned on at what time, which may or may not be an inherited process because the epigenome is doing lots of things regardless of cell division. So like a, a neuron, which doesn't divide, has lots of epigenetic processes going on that are communicating between the outside world and the and, and the inner world of the genes that's controlling gene expression, but it's not you know, passing on uh, an inherited memory of cell identity per se. So it has to do with you know, controlling where and um, RNA polymerase is, is engaged and active uh, to turn on the set of genes that are unique to that cell's identity. Let me just ask, is your... Um, lab, and I know you're recruiting, you have been recruiting, and maybe still are at this point, more scientists to work alongside you in the lab that has been opened up there at Case Western Reserve. Um, there was a gentleman that wrote a book called, I believe, Genetic Entropy and the Mystery of the Genome, uh, Dr. Sanford, formerly of Cornell <clears throat> University. Um, and, and just give me a, a sense of, because you are um, uh, a believer in a creator, uh, you're, you, and you're free to say that. So, oh, absolutely. Uh, so what, what, what are, and we'll go into in just a minute, some of the indicators of the high technology, which seems to defy kind of an unguided, unintelligence or origin. But um, as you look at the, at the genome, would you say that you're discovering day-to-day, -day, week -week, let's say year-to-year, -year, evidences of entropy over time? Yeah, so what my lab studies cancer, and mm. cancer is a disease of genetic entropy. Wow. 
And I actually wrote a companion article in 2013 uh, that's in the journal Entropy, and it's called Biosemiotic Entropy, Mutations and Epigenetic Malfunctions in Cancer. I wrote that article sort of as the epigenetic uh, component or sister article to John Sanford's book on genetic entropy. It was very much inspired by John John Sanford's uh, insights in the population genetics. Uh, We do actually dip in a little bit to population genetics as it interacts with the epigenome in that article um, and lays some of the conceptual frameworks for thinking about disease as a as a breakdown of uh, communication in the genome. So all, all diseases, in particular cancer, are diseases that happen because there is a degradation at every level. Um, it often starts at the genetic level, but it, it doesn't have to. It can start at the epigenetic level. Um, furthermore, m- most of the entropy that happens in disease is occurring not in genes, but is occurring in the epigenome is, is occurring in so-called enhancers, which are these sites of DNA um, transcription factor binding, or these um, previously thought of as junk DNA, regions of the genome which uh, have uh, encoded in their sequence the control switches for genes, mm. which we can get into. But there's entropy there in disease. So if you look at all human disease, and you, uh, so there's now been tens of thousands of humans uh, sequenced with their whole genome sequence. And if you ask, okay, for the people who have diabetes type one or the people who have lupus or Alzheimer's, and, and you just ask, where are the mutations that are enriching in those populations of, of disease versus people who don't have the same? And you just map, where are these mutations occurring? They aren't occurring in genes. 90% of them are occurring in the epigenome or in the what we used to think of as junk DNA, which tells you they're causally contributing to these to the biology of these diseases. And therefore, the entropy in the epigenome is way more dominant than we had previously appreciated. No, no, that's that's and and I sensed by doing a literature search that that has been one of your main focal points of research is, is tracking and dealing with, especially in the area of carcinoma, various, uh, you know, various cancers. Uh, I myself uh, was a- examined at age um, one and a half, just before my second birthday, to see if I had inherited the same uh, retinobl- retinoblastoma gene that uh, two first cousins and my grandmother had. Mm-hmm. I, you may be familiar with that that, that, yeah. that genetic mutation. And so uh, my three older brothers and I fortunately escaped, but two of my first cousins lost an eye at age one, you know, have have glass eyes to this day. Yeah. And and so I was it became very much at home, you know, to to see what what had happened. Just and I believe if I remember it's a single point mutation, just a single nucleotide in one of the developmental protein. And it's a whole chain of protein interactions, right? I mean, often. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah the, the RB gene is, a, that's, an, that's actually an epigenetic protein. Wow. It's, very, it's important for um, organizing chromatin. And many of the mutations that, that cause cancer, uh, cause cancer because of their effect on the epigenome. Wow. Principle. 
Well, let me let me dive into um, a description. I, I believe that you have seen uh, one of our models, right, where you have removable methyl tags. Um, and uh, so we in, in developing our DNA model uh, with seven codons, of course, 21 rungs, and, and the removable methyl tags, of course, we were very careful to put it in the cytosine, make sure that we, that's where the, 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 the DNA is, is, is methylated. But I think that, uh, if I, I, have I heard that adenine and RNAs can be methylated? The, oh, certainly. Yeah, there's, um, well, they can be, um, they can be methylated. There's, there's a variety of post-translational modifications, actually, which are emerging on RNA. Uh, it's not something I study or follow uh, very closely, mm -hmm. but yeah, there does seem to be this epitranscriptome. <laughs> okay, is the term. Uh, so for the RNA molecules, yeah, they are modified and controlled in ways that we're just beginning to unravel. Well, I mean, uh, I have said, and help me out with this: the DNA is amazing. But what to me is like uh, a little bit of icing on the DNA cake is that these. Uh, on-off switches, and I know that the the little and I call them Mickey Mouse heads with an extra ear, because we have the carbon with the three hydrogens sticking out. So mm -hmm. it's like, like looking at a Mickey Mouse head, but there's a third ear sticking out. <laughs> so so these little methyls, these little methane, you know, with one of the hydrogens bumped off and turned into a link, um, you know, the hydrogen bond. I mean, those little guys. There are millions of them. If I remember correctly, and when I did my initial computation, millions of them spread across the entire, let's say, uh, with with both both sets of chromosomes, six point two, you know, billion nucleotide pairs, you know, six point two billion rungs. There are millions of these methyl tags arrayed across different uh, parts of the landscape, depending on the cell type. Correct? Yeah, that's right. And so that means that, that means there's there are over 200 versions of the epigenome. That just blows me away. Oh, way more than 200. There have there's probably um, if you consider everything from a single a single fertilized cell, the very beginning of life, all the way up through embryogenesis and adulthood, there are tens or hundreds of thousands of different epigenomes. And wow. most of them are very transitory, but each is very important. So, so we, we reach a, a level of technology that seems to like uh, whisper, or maybe even the, the, go to the opposite and shout, you know, macro intelligence. I mean, like high tech. Um, so what, what the, the, the late um, biochemist slash astronomer uh, Fred Hoyle said, the super intellect. And yes. so, do, so do you see evidence of a super intellect at work? Yeah. And the way I think about it is the, there's a term that I'll, I'll put out for our listeners that I think is really helpful and it's called functional density or the amount of functions that you can have in a given three-dimensional space. So tech human technology develops, uh, and advances by increasing the number of functions it can have in a, in a given space or increasing functional density. So think about the original computers that took up a whole room and were filled with vacuum tubes. Um, very few functions, very large space. It has functional density, but it's, uh, it's low. 
And you know, as we move forward through history, the number, the number of functions that we can put in a computer are increasing, and the size of, of the computers are also shrinking at the same time. And so you've got this, this dramatic increase in the functional density of human technology over time in computer space. And you could, you could do the same thing for, um, for other types of, of, of human engineering. So functional density is a measure of the capacity of the engineering um, intelligence. So it's a mark of intelligence. And the more intelligence you gather, the more knowledge, the more capacity you, you, you gather as, as a team. So you have collective intelligence that, that grows, which is required for the creation of things with very, very high functional density. Well, if you look at the human cell, its functional density orders of magnitude higher than the best we've been able to do with, with massive amounts of collective engineering intelligence. So it, it's, if you chart human technology over time, and if you chart human intelligence and capacity over time, uh, it is directly correlated with, with what we can create and how much functional density uh, can you know, be present in something like you know, my smartphone hugely functionally dense uh, machine. And it is dwarfed by the simplest cells uh, and it's really dwarfed by multicellular organisms. The functional density inside a single fertilized egg is absolutely mind-blowing. Um, the number of interlocking uh, decisions and organs and um, circuits that sense the world that, that grow outward uh, and productively. There's so much information exchange that's elegant and works on so many simultaneous levels and has a robustness that, that dwarfs. I mean, if there's a, there's a technological robustness um, and super high functional density that is happening inside every living. It's mind-blowing. There's, there's no other rational explanation for it, for the, for the existence of something with such high functional density there's chemistry it's too blind to get you that <laughs> i i long for more you know rising uh, scientists uh, in in research areas to to be able to share some of these insights what is one or uh, one or two really exciting and interesting discovery that you and your team have been able to make that that and which may even contribute to dealing with cancers but um can can you share one or two things that have come out either of your lab or of the field of epigenetics that was a wow to you? Sure, absolutely. So where do I begin? Um, <laughs> <laughs> we, we've been doing this now for about a decade, so it, it's, it's been quite the roller coaster. Uh, I'll say there are, there are many, many, many fundamental, I, I would say, breakthroughs that have happened recently that our lab has, con has contributed to the conversation. Uh, we've published some papers that have been really important in uh, the field of epigenetics, in particular uh, regarding histone modifications. So RNA polymerase is a is a molecule that transcribes our genes. It's uh, really it's it's a, it's a scribe that goes in and reads the DNA and and makes uh, little. Uh, single-stranded copies, uh, as your audience probably knows, 
the messenger RNA. It, yeah, it makes messenger RNA. Mm -hmm. But how it does that, like how it knows where to go, has been fundamentally a mystery. My lab has contributed quite a bit of insight into understanding why it is able to go to certain genes and stay there and function and maintain cell identity over time, uh, especially in the context of cancer. And so the, for me, there's been a couple of big aha moments. One big aha moment was in appreciating uh, the work of Rick Young, who discovered super enhancers. And the reason why this was so exciting is because he pointed out that there are these regions of the genome that are really special, they're really unique, and they're really large. And there are certain genes which are only on it at just the right time. And, they, and they're, they're called master transcription factors. So master transcription factors um, are really at the heart of the epigenome because they, um, they self-reinforce. That was a huge, uh, that was a huge aha moment for me realizing that, that these master transcription factors are so powerful because they have super enhancers. And a super enhancer is a very long stretch of regulatory DNA that maintains the expression of that, of that same master transcription factor, which is a protein that then comes back around and self-reinforces by binding its own super enhancer and maintaining its own transcription. And not only does a single master transcription factor work in such a way, they also they move in groups to co-regulate one another. So these, the appreciation of these, um, these super extra large, I mean, I'm, they're like 80,000 base pairs uh, or, or so uh, in their size. That's often, huge. That's just enormous. They're, they're, they take up an enormous real estate in the, in the epigenome. And they usually only drive one really important gene that drives cell identity. And... Mm -hmm. The fact that they self-reinforce gives clues as to how cells maintain their identity over time. It's actually turns out to be probably one of the, if not the most important mechanism for maintaining, uh, especially cancer cell identity uh, over the years it may be growing in a human. Hmm. Um, and, and also, you know, there's a huge amount of logic in the way these regulate one another because there's it's like a combination lock so these super enhancers form these combination locks where they have to have there may be 10 sequences all side by side that don't code for proteins they're just little um pockets of sequence each of which may recognize a different protein and all of those proteins have to be present in combination in order to, to turn on the lock, to open it. And that's really what we're seeing. And this sort of genius combination lock um, setup is patterned across the epigenome in a way that creates circuits, logic circuits. Mm -hmm. it's, very, it's very well engineered um, set, set of logic, logic circuits that tune and control these master regulators that, that 
not only do they set cell identity, but they also uh, restrict where you can go. So cells often might want to change their identity in response to some environmental cue. Wow. You, you have to go through those logic circuits, which controls you know, where you can move um, because you have to turn off one master transcription factor and turn on another one, which is all done via these super enhancers switching. And so super enhancer switching is, is a bit of a mystery. So that's, um, that's what we've been doing. So I'd say starting in 2013, 2014, 2015, we did a lot of work just mapping where are these in cancer yeah. using epigenetic technologies, um, creating the maps. So we've, we've done that now for many childhood cancers. And I was the first to do it for, for many childhood cancers. I created all the first maps for the epigenomes. Wow. Of some of these uh, rare cancers, which gave us a lot of insight. Well, that's, I mean, th this, this blows my mind. Number one, number two, um, this is like very, it seems to me a fundamental breakthrough in getting our arms around what's going on in childhood cancers. I mean, and and I and I'm just I'm struck with how powerful, fruitful, how exciting it is to be on a team like like you, your team you've assembled. I mean, don't you mind if I ask how many scientists uh, do you have working along with you in your group? Yeah, well, you know, we have ten working in our group here, and but I think more importantly, the the modern scientific community is so collaborative. We publish papers always with two or three, sometimes up to eight different groups mm -hmm. will all be on the same paper. So there's an extensive community. It's much less siloed because in order to make progress, we really do have to have mm -hmm. a lot of effort from a very diverse. Yeah. Um, any, uh, any contact, any contact with the icon building or the, the genetics department of Princeton? I was just curious. Well, I, I think I told you my, uh, in our previous correspondence, uh, two of my uh, PhD students are from Princeton, actually. Oh, yes. <laughs> Go old Nassau. Yeah. I was just back from my 50th reunion this last week, and yeah, uh, right. I just had a blast. But, uh, but back to this whole area of um, the, the, the origin issue, because uh, I have written a, a two-part you know, history of intelligent design and its dialogue and, and kind of interaction with Darwinism. Uh, Doubts about Darwin, which is my PhD dissertation here at USF uh, for a very kind of, uh, it was a fun, feisty, crusty, mostly agnostic group of scholars. And they, they kept prodding me to write about this guy, Behe, you know, analyze his rhetoric. And, and why is it, it seeming uh, to win more and more, you know, uh, interested followers and and on and on. And so then as I went from that and then into epigenetics, I, I the more I, I looked at it, it seemed to me that the Darwinian explanation that everything was happening by random mutation variation and random mutation filtered by natural selection. And of course, I, I, I am amazed at the new book by Michael Behe, Darwin Devolves, which talks about um, natural selection works, but it often breaking and blunting genes. And so, so what, what would you see as uh, the, the, maybe the, the province or the area where Darwin theory, at least at a micro level, can work? And where, where do you see it falling short as a master explanatory approach? 
That's a fantastic question. I've, I've been thinking about this more recently in, the, in, in terms of cancer evolution. So cancer is definitely a great place where the law of mutation and natural selection is very rampant and very real. And Darwin works ex exquisitely well. Um, like, well, the, I'd say the Darwinian way of thinking about, you know, fitness and survival and um, adaptation um, is definitely something that we, we observe through cancer evolution. And, and yet it's always still cancer in the same way that you might say, oh, viruses evolve and they can mutate, the coronavirus mutates and, and you know, finds its optimal local evolutionary fitness uh, peak. <laughs> but it's, it's never something other than a virus. So the same thing's true for bacteria. The same thing is true in fruit flies. Um, we see variability but there are very, very sharp cliffs to how far that variability can go. That's very, very clearly defined in the genome. And to me, it is, you know, natural selection can explain all the variability within a species. And it, it could probably also, and in some cases where we haven't drawn the line between species uh, crisp enough, Perhaps if two species can interbreed, Darwinian mechanisms can also, um, you know, shift the alleles around, shift the sort of, um, uh, for your audience, I'll say alleles so are just different copies of the same gene uh, that you get one from your mom one, and, and one from your dad. Let's say if your dad had brown eyes and your mom had blue eyes and, and you get a mix of the two, well, that's a trait, and over time, you know, in a population, you can have selective pressures that can that can cause the prevalence of some variability in the genome to increase in one direction or another um, to allow the population to be maximally adapted to its environment. We see that in, in cancer, we see that in viruses, and we see that at the species level very clearly, um, and. And when I say species, I like to, to, to say at the species plus interbreeding species level, because if two, if two species can interbreed, then, then you can have uh, a sort of mixed variability. And maybe we just didn't draw the line properly there. But certainly there's, there's no observed, like no one's ever observed uh, genus hopping. <laughs> no one's ever observed the creation of a new genus, you know? Um, and, and to your point about Michael's book, it's, it's really great because he goes through the literature and systematically proves that every instance of, or he calls it the first rule of adaptive evolution. Um, it, if you have uh, a new, uh, an apparently new function or an apparently new feature or adaptability feature, I think it's what 95% of the time it just broke something. Yeah. <laughs> it didn't create something new. It just broke something that used to function and now no longer functions, but happens to, to uh, give a survival benefit. Yeah. Breaking or blunting. I think he uses the, the terms, a variety of terms. And, and uh, he, he, yeah, I think he makes a wonderful argument that we see the creation of new 
morphology and, and genetic underpinning of morphology virtually nowhere. We only see side uh, branches of new specialized species like the polar bear, like cichlid fish, you know, in the uh, big lake in Africa, et cetera. Uh, and, and demonstrably, they're, they're breaking, blunting, you know, bringing into a, a less, lesser uh, functional uh, robustness uh, what's going on there. But if, if I can shift back to your area of epigenetics and just um, help us to understand the, the, the chromatin, which to me is a, is a masterpiece of, of, of design and creation. Chromatin is like the spool. Is it the histone spool with its wiggly tails? I don't know how wiggly they are. Maybe that's the wrong description. Well, they're, they're, they're quite disordered. Yeah. They're very wiggly. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I like to describe it as this six foot long string that has been wrapped around beads that are only a few nanometers um, mm-hmm. uh, apart. So it's it's beads on a string, and it's just a it's a very very long pearl necklace um, that's packed into something so small you can't see it. <laughs> No, uh, and and yeah, the the actual you know when we talk, when we talk about epigenetics, we, we're talking about the modifications on those beads mm-hmm. that change the way DNA wraps around the beads. Sometimes um, can change you know how strong or sticky those beads are to the DNA, which fundamentally uh, controls if the DNA code can get access. Hmm. So most of the time, the I'd say the first and most basic role of the beads that DNA wraps around, these histones that DNA wraps around to form chromatin, the, the, the most important job they perform, other than packing into a small space, is preventing RNA polymerase from entering. It's wow. to, it's, that's the first, that's its first and primary job. And just blocking RNA polymerase is what that's what that's what histones do. And you have to really work very hard and put in a lot of energy, chemical energy, to move histones out of the way. So and and I mean acetylation, isn't there a little acetyl tag that's brought in and does that help to swing we Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so acetylation of the lysines. So lysines are positively charged and DNA is negative. Mm-hmm. So the reason why DNA wraps so strongly around histones is because histones are so positively charged and DNA is so negatively charged. Its backbone is just a long string of minus. Um and so the acetylation takes that positive charge on the lysine and silences it, mm. preventing or reducing the ability of those positive charges to stabilize the negatively charged DNA. And so it, the more you acetylate a histone, the, 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 the weaker and weaker those charge-charge interactions become. And eventually it falls off. So we, I, I'm going to be showing off uh, in two days our three-foot-tall histone model. I don't know if you've seen that. We created an actual single histone with, with ar- arms. And so um, one of the questions I'd like to ask is, I, when I was researching for our book, The Mysterious Epigenome, I was reading that there are not only um, 
you know, on the tails of the sticking out of the histone storage tools, there, there are acetyl um, uh, phosphate and meth methyl methylation methane molecules that are used. And it's like almost like a language, like a histone code. The scientists mm -hmm. still call it the histone code, or has that been tossed aside? The histone code has, I'd say, fallen to the wayside a little bit as a preferred way to talk about it. Okay. Um, there is definitely, so I, I think the, the, the concept is still true that there are patterns of histone modifications which are meaningful, mm -hmm. but we stopped calling it a code when we realized it's not instructive. In other words, uh, the histone code is, it's more like a histone cog. So those modifications are, they are not causal. They are, um, they, they are intermediates. They, they are placed there intentionally by other proteins. And so because their location is not self-determined, but determined rather by transcription factors, mm -hmm. really we've, we've, you know, I think it's better to talk about a transcription factor code that directs histone modification locations. So all of the histone uh, post-translational modifications are very, very important, and they 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 are mechanically important for how everything works. Do you, they do you, yeah. do you go ahead? Does that make sense? No, no, that's that's very helpful. Do you do you still consider that the membranes of cells, in some sense, seem to have heritable informational patterns? Oh, absolutely. Could you just talk about that? Because that is shocking, thrilling, amazing to me. Yeah, I mean, every everything that, you know, if you think about it, when a cell divides, it's it's taking all of its environment and and splitting it into two, which means all the lipids in the membrane, which have memory about the amount of cholesterol in the cell, the amount of um, you know, receptor tyrosine kinases on the surface of the cell and the, the, the particular flavor of kinases on the cell surface. So there's, there's huge complex, I mean, it's like a busy city on the surface of, of cells because of the, all the proteins that are embedded in the membranes mm. um, on the cell surface. And that busy city, you know, uh, it's like taking Los Angeles, doubling its, uh, its population size and, you know, making a copy of all the same buildings that are there and then splitting it into two cities and then sending one elsewhere. Like they're going to have the same buildings, the same demographics, et cetera, uh, because, you know, they are coming from the same parent cell. Does that make sense? Yes. And so it's definitely a kind of epigenetic memory that's communicated there. Fantastic. Tick off for me as we conclude here in the next oh, three to four minutes, tick off um, maybe some of the major discoveries in your area and even in genetics or even in biology general. Uh, you, you can go beyond five if you want, but tick off some of the, some of the discoveries, um, at least you know the, the, the breakthroughs that have pointed more and more away from neo-Darwinism as the solution, as the ex explainer 
for what we see in the world of biology and toward an intelligent cause. What, what, what indicators do you say this really indicates intelligence is at work? Yeah, absolutely. I would say there are I like to call these um, chicken and egg problems. People don't appreciate how hard that those problems actually are. Um, there are there are interlocked, interconnected systems that that cannot work unless all members of the system are in place. So, the, this I think that the comp, that the the concept of irreducible complexity is a is a good way to term it that um, you need the DNA in order to create the RNA, in order to create the protein that maintains DNA. So there's, there's no scenario in which you can have just one of these components because the DNA has no meaning until the proteins it encodes are able to be present doing their job. Um, I think that, so that, that interlocked, um, all pieces have to be there at the same time from the first moment in order for any of them to be functionally relevant is absolutely not evolvable. And to me, even though that's not a new insight, it is the, it's the basis of all other such observations that we come across. So there are many additional layers uh, that have the same kind of interlocked um, causal dependencies that, that, that are irreducibly complex. So there's, there are, the more we learn about the epigenome, the more we learn about the, the fact that from the same cell, you can have all of the programs necessary to create an eyeball and a brain and a muscle and a heart and a liver and you know a little pinky toe. Um, all of the information for all of these complex organs, uh, the, the, as we find that in every possible way we try to tear apart and, and dive deep into understanding how complex biology is, it's complexity only, it only increases. I've kind of stepped over the edge of a cliff, the, 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 the cliff of detail in the human cell and in the regulation of genes and in the regulation of, we haven't even talked about metabolites and metabolism and, uh, you know, signals that go between cells or the way organs maintain their structure. There are so many layers of complexity that are all packed into that one single cell at wow. conception. Wow. And the fact that it, it goes off without a hitch so, so well uh, during human, human development to create a crying baby. Mm -hmm. um, is absolutely mind blowing when you start to appreciate the the fact that 
everywhere we look, we see function. Mm-hmm. All of the all of the elements in the genome that we used to think were junk, they're doing something important. And even the ones that we used to think, oh, they don't do anything important. That's just because we didn't have the right concepts to um, even ask what could they be doing functionally. Mm. Um, there are time would run out before I was able to to, to describe. Um, but I'll, I'll just, I'll give you a hint. Um, the genome has to fold just right in three dimensions. It has to not, it has to fold in such a way that it doesn't collapse in on itself. It has to organize the location of proteins in the right place at the right time. It does this at near supersonic speeds. Um, it moves molecules around in a way that looks random, but produces non-random outcomes uh, that are that are very precise um, at a meta scale. Uh, it is uh, it's hard to fathom. And as I said, this this cliff of complexity that I that I stare down, I'm not sure it has a bottom. I'm not sure we'll, we'll, we'll get to the point ever where we say that's the end of the complexity. Mm. It seems that, that there are levels of complexity, um, informational, logical complexity that are being discovered every day are, at, every, at every level. That, that, that is, um, it's, it's almost like, um, looking staring up a tsunami of complexity and you say where's the top yeah, yeah. well that's right um it's it's a tsunami that reaches past the clouds yeah. <laughs> so so what what advice would you give to a, a high school or college student who's being told no there's no intelligence here it all happened through selection of um of variations what what what, what would be a good um, um set of basic books i mean would you recommend you know darwin devolves by, by michael behe are there any other books uh, out there that you'd say could be potentially helpful absolutely uh i think i think uh darwin devolves is fantastic i haven't read it fully but there was a uh There was a book that influenced me quite a lot. It was John Sanford's um, Genetic Entropy. Genetic Entropy in the in, Mystery of the Genome. In the mystery, in, yeah. So, in the mystery of the human genome, I think if you're genetics minded and you're if you're a high school student, you're probably not going to read that though. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it's very technical and it dives into the to the technical literature. Um, if you're a high school student and you and you read that, please call me. I want to give you a job. <laughs> um, but uh, um, I think some of the yeah, Darwin devolves is more accessible. Um, I mean, I I, I recommend a Doug Axe, undeniable. I don't know if you ever heard of. Yes, oh, yeah. Doug Axe's work is fantastic. Um, yeah. I, um, so I I do. I do want to answer your, your question with, with something um, specific. There's a book that I really, really loved called The Natural Limits to Biological Change. And it's old now. Um, it was written in 1989. 
but it is it is a fantastic read that to me gets at really the heart of the issue quite well. Um, you know, because we want to encourage critical thinking that doesn't say, oh no, natural selection is not a thing. The, the, the right question to ask, which this book asks, is how far can it go? And what do we observe actually? You know, science means observation. So what do we actually see? And the natural limits to biological change is by Lane, Lester, and Raymond Bolin. And uh, it's to me, that was very, very influential in a very positive way early on. Uh, so I would recommend that book. Terrific, terrific. Um, well, I have several hundred of other questions. Uh, to, it's like the scene from the old, what, 1950-51 movie, um, you know, The Day the Earth Stood Still, where um, uh, Lee Remick, uh, or John Rennick, I'd rather, um, is in, in interacting with the Einstein. And, I, and the Einstein sits down and says, I have several thousand questions I'd like to ask you. And uh, to the to the spaceman. So um, I, I'm no Einstein, but I, you're the spaceman. I have several thousand questions I'd like to ask you. Well, we should do this again. This was fun. We yeah. should, uh, I'd, I'd be happy to. Uh, I, I appreciate your help in uh, guiding us and uh, opening up new vistas of the incredible complexity. The uh, looking off the cliff and seeing nothing but clouds below. Uh, you can even see the bottom of the cliff. That's that's a keeper. Well. Thank you for joining us uh, here on The Universe Next Door. And uh, may you have a great uh, best yet year 2022 there at the Berkeley Greater Lab at uh, Case Western Reserve. Best to you, sir. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you. Thank you again for listening to The Universe Next Door. Please share the show with a friend. Uh, that is the best way to get our content out there. And make sure to come back Monday at 6 p.m. when we're going to feature Beckett Cook. And we're going to talk about how to respond to homosexuality and transgenderism. So make sure to come back and check that out. And we'll see you back here next week on The Universe Next Door.